When I was a high school student, I didn't have much choice but to maintain a Christian facade because my parents were missionaries. My parents still live in Mexico where they brought me up. They're career missionaries. They've been there now for 52 years. And I'm an only child. And only child, they, people think we're spoiled. And maybe some only children were, but not me. They, it was, I was double covered all the time. Um, so there was a lot, of, a lot of visibility of my life. My dad had a very public ministry. And I, in my childhood, loved to go with him and loved to be part of the church that he was serving. But in high school, on the inside, not on the outside because of these external factors, on the inside, my heart got pretty far away from Jesus. Looking back and making sense of it now as a grown man with young adult sons, I understand all the toxic things came together all at the same time to pull me away from Jesus. There was a girl. I wanted to impress her. And she was an atheist. So I got quiet about God. There was a professor who was an actual, honest-to-goodness, card-carrying Marxist who taught communism in our classroom and used the writings of German philosophers to slowly chip away at my faith. I even remember coming home one day and telling my mother that perhaps there was no real absolute and moral truth anywhere to be found in the universe. And then there were, I was in a private high school because that's what the law required and a lot of my classmates were wealthy and our family was comfortable thanks to the generosity of churches like this who supported us that whole time. But I had classmates who had real money, what I called even then bodyguard money. And I thought, you know, I, 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 I'd like some of that. I'm vacationing in El Paso. They're vacationing in Morocco. I'd like to upgrade our life just a little bit. And all of those things together, desire to impress a literally godless girl, the philosophy of a brilliant and determined professor to shake my faith in God, and what I now readily identify as envy and greed and covetousness and a love for things that the world provides and offers as the final answer to the best thing in life. All of those things made me walk away from Jesus, at least on the inside. And I think it was pretty late in my senior year when I had a, a really interesting experience. Nothing like that has ever happened, had happened before and has happened since. I was in that kind of twilight sleep where sometimes you're, I don't know what this is called, I need to Google it before the third service. You know the sense where you just suddenly just kind of spasm? Does this happen to anybody else? You're, you're going to sleep and then bam, it's like somebody hit you with the taser and sit up in bed and go, what in the world was that? That was unnecessary, that was uncool. And then you try to calm yourself back down and go to sleep. That didn't happen physically to me, that happened spiritually to me because in that twilight sleep, as I was just in that last little bit of consciousness where you're so happy because you can tell you're going to sleep and you want to, God gave me a Bible verse that I had put in my heart many years earlier. It's the words from Jesus in John 14. Jesus said this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And 
God didn't speak audibly to me, but that resonated in my memory with such volume and with such intensity. I actually sat straight up in bed, put my hands behind me. I could feel my heart racing. And that verse, which had once been part of my life and something I was actually trying to put into practice, woke me up literally physically and spiritually. And I slowly, not in a moment, but as slowly in that moment, began to confess my sins to God and start walking back toward Him. The reason I'm telling you this is because we've been in a series, which I'm going to extend a little bit because I've learned some things since I started studying for it. We've been talking about how to know God. And the last two weeks have been really straightforward and, and basic and simple. I've told you that you need to read your Bible so that you can hear what God has to say. God in love is not playing hard to get. He has made Himself known first in Scripture and then ultimately in His Son, Jesus Christ. So you have a written word and a living word that clearly, articulately, boldly, tell you without any real possibility of missing what God says, if you read it with a humble attitude, God wants to be known. He's telling you who He is. That's reading your Bible. And then I went on to explain that you have now the privilege of prayer. After giving God the first word and letting God speak to you as He has desired to do and has done in writing and through His Son, Jesus Christ, you actually have the privilege of talking back. And there's nothing, you will not grow spiritually beyond your will and discipline and desire to read your Bible and pray. Those are the fundamentals. If this were football, that's blocking and tackling. It's not going to get better until those two fundamentals are in your heart and in your daily life. You don't have to do them perfectly, but you have to do them diligently. But today I want to tell you, and the Bible itself tells you this, that your Bible reading and your prayer can both be wasted. It can be literally an exercise, not only in futility, but an exercise in self-deception. If you keep reading and you keep praying, but you don't do a third thing, those precious God-given gifts can be wasted because when it comes to knowing God, please take this to heart, when it comes to knowing God, obeying Him is everything. It all ultimately boils down to whether you will obey the God you have heard from, whether you will obey the God you've been speaking to in prayer. And we have to get that straight because in this world there has always been a dangerous deception which can be found described to us in Titus 1 verse 16. This is nearly 2,000 years old. This is Paul writing to a pastor in the ancient world named Titus describing people that Titus was having to deal with as a spiritual leader. Read this with me, please. Titus 1 verse 16 says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The danger is in the first sentence. They profess to know God. What does that mean? They claim to know God. They have a public statement of knowing God. They have a testimony. They have a story. They have an argument. They say that they know God, but notice the next few words. They what? They deny Him. 
They don't not only deny what they say with their lips, they deny the God that they claim to know. It's worse than denying their testimony because you can change your mind. You can take it back. You can retract it. You can say, I was mistaken. You could say, I was lying back then. No, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by, and here's always the way you can tell. It's not what you say. It's always what you do. They deny Him by their works. And the reason this is happening, the reason their words are disconnected, their works are disconnected from their words their creed is disconnected from what they actually do, is they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The truth, friends, is simply this. If you love Jesus, you will obey Him. I just have three really simple things to share with you this morning. The first is this. There is always a deception possible in the ancient world all the way to the present day that Christians and people who believe they are Christians can profess to know God but actually deny Him by the way they live. If I were a poet, I would say that their deeds deny their creed. What their works deny their words. They profess to know God but they deny Him by their works. The truth is this, if you love Jesus, you will obey Him. There's the verse that woke me up. John 14, verse 15 says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is crystal clear about this, and I'm going to share with you in just a few minutes, John chapter 14, the setting is this, Jesus is on His way to the cross, but He's spending the last few chapters with His disciples, beginning in John chapter 14, teaching them on the way to the cross. He's being abundantly crystal clear. One of His disciples is even going to say with some admiration and perhaps surprise, now we get it. Now you're being clear. Now we understand. It's this simple. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you genuinely love Jesus, you will do what he says. It's the only relationship in your, in your life that will always work this way. People who are married don't always do what their spouses say. Have you noticed? Don't look in an accusatory fashion at your spouse. That won't help anything. Parents don't always do what their kids want. Kids don't always do what their parents want. Those are human relationships. This relationship with God is unlike any other that you could ever have in the entire universe. He's God. He's always trustworthy. He's always good. He's always loving. He always deserves to be obeyed. And Jesus cuts through all of the excuses, all of the reasons, and all of the arguments by simply saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John, his disciple who wrote this gospel, also wrote 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, and in your outline, if you're looking on your outline, I've put the part I'm going to read to you in bold. Do you see that? Don't, pick up, don't start reading in the beginning of that paragraph. We'll come back to that. Just read with me right now what John said in verse 3, where the bold starts. By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. John is just echoing what he heard from Jesus on the night he was arrested. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, 
but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Is that clear enough for you? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is, what's that word? Perfected. Now, what in the world does that mean? I thought the love of God was perfect already. It is. The love of God is perfect. You experience love and crave love and acceptance and affection and all the other good things that we come under the big heading of love because God is love and He made you to receive love and to give love. No one can escape that. Sometimes men are uncomfortable talking about love in those terms. They prefer other words. They're manly men. But every person in this world wants to be loved. They may think of it in terms of acceptance or respect or loyalty, but really what it comes down to is what every child wants, what every good mother and father gives, it's love. And John says, verse 5, whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that the love that God has gets better once you start obeying Him. No, His love is constant. In fact, the Bible says right here in 1 John, God is love. That is His very nature. Unlike you and me, He can't grow in love. It's actually who He is. It's essential to His very being. What it means is this. When God loves someone first, because that's always the way it works, we love Him because He first loved us. And we actually love Him, Jesus says, if we really love Him, then we will obey Him. And John says, when you keep His word, when you do what God has said, the love of God is perfected, meaning the love that God gave you has its desired intent. It has its purpose. The purpose for which God loved you is fulfilled in your life. It's perfected in the sense not that it, God starts loving you more, but that His love has the intention He had when He first began to love you. Think of it like this. Love prepares ahead of time. One of the characteristics of love is you think of the needs of the other person, you figure them out in advance, and you prepare for them. That's why when a couple is expecting a baby, that house is transformed in at least one space. Because now the man cave is disappearing. What's coming in its place? <laughs> the nursery. Hopefully we can keep the man cave, but if it's between the man cave and taking care of the baby, only a psychopath would deny the baby space. And Furniture is tossed out, other furniture is purchased, all kinds of things are painted, all kinds of cute, dainty things, big googly eyes and pillows and blankets and toys and things to hang over the baby. I mean, we're doing everything we can to keep the baby safe, to keep the baby warm, to keep the baby cool, to keep, make sure the baby doesn't have a rash, to make sure the baby is well fed, to make sure the baby sleeps in the right position. It's extraordinary the amount of time, money that is poured into welcoming someone you haven't even met. Why does that happen? Because you love them. 
not having yet seen them, you love them already, and loving people make preparations. God made preparation for you before you even knew that you were you. He looked across time and eternity, saw you lost in his sin, in your sin, and set his love upon you, sent his son after you when you weren't looking for him, before you even knew that there was a God and that he had a son named Jesus. And when he loves you, and you actually know through his love who he is, and you begin to love him back at that moment, his love is perfected in you. You change. His purpose is accomplished. The reason, the practical reason for which God did all of this, because this language can sound really, really abstract, but please don't miss sight of the fact, it's deeply personal. There is no abstract love. Love is always between one person to another. Love always takes practical action, and God has acted in history, first to explain himself in writing, then to send his son to live for you and to die for you and to show you his love. And when you begin to keep his teaching, John says the reason you're doing that is because you actually know him. And in knowing him, you love him, and you do what he says, and then Finally then, after all of that time, those centuries, those millennia, all of that sacrifice on the part of God, the love of God is perfected because it finally did in your individual specific life what God intended for it to do. This is what it means. In fact, to begin to know God, it really is all about obedience. To begin to know God, the Bible says, you must obey Him. You can't know God and you can't begin a relationship with Him until you begin to obey Him. If you're keeping notes, letter A, to begin to know God, you must obey Him. That is salvation. Here's how Jesus explained it. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I, what's it say there? Know them. And they, what? This is very practical. It's very personal. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You have to understand a little detail of culture and history to really understand the magnitude of this verse. In the West, we herd sheep. Any of you ever had a German shepherd or an English sheepdog? They're big, scary animals, scary at least to the sheep. In the West, we push the sheep down the road. The dogs race around them, nipping at them, snarling at them, threatening them, getting them to conform, and to get into a bunch and to go where the shepherds have intended. In the East, it's not that way. To this day, it's a marvel to watch. You can probably find it on YouTube. Shepherds lead from the front. They have a characteristic call in a very small flock. If the guy's very attentive, he might even give sheep names. And the shepherd will lead from the front. It's a marvelous thing to see. The shepherd will begin to call out, give his characteristic call, and those silly little animals will pick their head up when they hear that voice, and they will start following the shepherd. That's what Jesus is describing here. All kinds of people in the world, but his people, his sheep, hear my voice. And here's the best part. Here's the loving part. I know them, and because I know them and call them, they, what? Follow me. 
And it's a gift. Don't miss that. I give them eternal life. It's not earned. Speaking of the military, there's an entire branch, and then within the military, a few schools, that they'll give you a t-shirt, or they'll sell you a t-shirt at least, that says something like this. This is earned, not given. And that's a great accomplishment. Make no mistake, the gospel of Jesus knows nothing about earning. It can't be earned. It has to be given. I give them eternal life. And because he gives them as a gift eternal life, it's what he says next is obvious and immediate. And they will, what's it say? Never perish. Why? Because I'm their good shepherd. Because they may not know where I'm going, but I do. I'm going to take them safely home. And in fact, no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's salvation. If you refuse the call of Jesus, if you don't believe Jesus, all the Bible reading in the world will do you no good. In John 5.39, Jesus said to men who hated him, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me and you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. You have to obey him. That's salvation. And then, letter B, to know God better, you must keep obeying him. Once the life with God has begun, the way to know Him better is to do what happened when He first saved you. You just keep obeying Him, and that's what the Bible calls sanctification. Big, fancy, biblical, theological, doctrinal word, it just means that you are becoming holy, that you are increasingly set apart for God, that you are becoming more like your Father. Here's how Jesus explained it, John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Don't miss this. This verse 11 is very important. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full. See, we have to be very careful here. Some people, because of religious tradition and because of hypocritical spiritual leaders and because many people use spiritual authority and wield it as something to serve themselves, even to the point of abusing others, some people have gotten the impression that God is kind of a cosmic killjoy. Someone misunderstanding the Puritans wrote years ago, not true, misunderstanding, but very funny to me, that a Puritan is someone who is deathly afraid that somewhere someone is having fun. Yeah. And that's the way a lot of people think God is. I've had many, many people tell me, I, I understand what you're telling me about Jesus, but I want to have some fun first. I want to live my life. When I'm old and gray and death draws near, then it's a crazy gamble to take because you don't know. And not only this, you get accustomed to telling God no. It gets easier to do so time after time. Your heart gets hard. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. In other words, I love you. Everything I'm telling you is true and right and pure and good. If you keep doing what I'm telling you, you're going to stay right in the middle of my love. You're going to enjoy the love that I've already given you. 
He's our example. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, don't miss verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He's not trying to ruin your life. He's trying to give you His. He's trying to give you real joy, real happiness, real peace, real qualities and virtues that are found in God Himself that the world mimics and misses. You can't go wrong obeying God. Some people have such a blighted, unbiblical view of God, they think God doesn't laugh. Read your Bible, He does. Do you know why you laugh? Because you're made in the image of God. You have imagination and dreams and purpose, and you experience the world in color because God, in His enormous creativity, made this spectacular world with colors so vivid that you actually need technology to see them all. You can't see the true and best colors of the universe without the aid of technology to improve your eyesight. God has purposes and plans. All of the things that you find exciting about being a human being are a reflection of the way He made you because the Bible says you're made in His image. And if He who runs the world tells you how to live, you can be sure that those things are not only going to be for your good, they're also going to be for your joy. Please take that to heart. The way a lot of Christians hear Jesus says, well, this is going to be terrible, but I have to do it, and I'm not going to enjoy it, and I guess I'll just do it, and someday I'll, life here on earth is just going to be gray and drained of all excitement and joy and happiness, but someday I'll be in heaven and it'll be worth it all. It's a terrible way to live. It's not the way Jesus lived. If you read your Gospels carefully, you're going to see Jesus in all kinds of homes, at all kinds of parties, bursting into spontaneous prayer, literally singing. He is life. Why would we think that His life is going to be worse than the life we've created for ourselves? It's not. The truth is, number two, that Jesus has promised you many gifts so that you can obey Him. Look with me in John chapter 14. Really, this is the heart of what I want to show you. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then he keeps talking. I didn't know it when I was a high school student. I'd only lodged verse 15 into my memory. It took me years to understand the beauty of what he says next. These next few verses that I'm just going to read to you and pull some things out of so that you can see them describe all the gifts that Jesus has already given you if you're a Christian so that you can obey Him. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper. Why another? Because Jesus is already your helper, your advocate. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Because Jesus, the man, is about to die. The Holy Spirit is going to come and He's going to stay. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What's the first gift? The first gift is this. The Holy Spirit will be with you and He has come 
beside you, and He has come to be in you, to teach you, and to remind you of Jesus. Look down to verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. He said it again. Did you notice? Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the words that you hear, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will do what? He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What that means, if I'm understanding my Bible correctly and it's pretty hard to miss, is that what God in His grace did for a wayward missionary kid in Chihuahua, Mexico, when I was just 18 years old, He used the word that I had once remembered and put into my heart to wake me up. Without being mystical, just to tell you practically what happened, the reason God brought that to memory when I was nearly asleep is because the Holy Spirit reminded me of something that Jesus had said to me and about me. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the brightness of that verse shining into my dark little heart, which had gotten so accustomed to being a hypocrite, woke me up and broke my heart. And started me back on a long journey that eventually ended with giving up the career I had begun to pursue already, walking closely with Jesus. Don't regret it for a moment, and it's all because of this gift. The Holy Spirit will be with you, and He will be with you to teach you and to remind you of Jesus. Not only that, look in verse 19. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. Are you getting the idea here? He's a great communicator. He's saying the most important things several times so that we can't miss them. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That means that when you follow the love of God that God first had for you, and you love him back, you'll be loved by the Father. Have you heard about a vicious cycle? We're all familiar with those, right? That's practically every fight you've had in marriage. Okay? You say something disrespectful, and she reacts, and that angers you more, and you say something else. And here we go. Until somebody mature breaks the cycle and says something like, you know what, I, I was wrong. I'm sorry. That was rude. I'm hungry. Feed me, and all will be well. <laughs> Just telling you where I live. <laughs> That's a vicious cycle. It works the other way as well. There is such a thing as a virtuous cycle. Here's what the Christian life is intended to be. This same book will tell you that we love God because He first loved us. He made preparation for you. He's like that father preparing the nursery. He made preparations for you. 
He wrote the name he was going to give you on the walls. He's ready for you. He's made ready for your arrival into his family. He loves you. As you begin to know him, you love him back. And he keeps loving you. Here's the beautiful thing about the heavenly father. Because he is love, he can't love you more than he already does. My love for my wife and children has grown over the years. I've been married to my wife for over 30 years. I love her more today than I did the day we got married. I thought my heart would burst on our wedding day. I was so happy. I loved her so much. I had no idea. In a human heart, love can grow. In the love, in the heart of God, love is already perfect because God is love. And Jesus says the way a disciple of Jesus is going to experience that is when you love the Father who first loved you, the Father will love you and Jesus will show up and manifest himself to you. Not only that, verse 22 says... Judas, not Iscariot, because that traitor had already left, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, look how simple this is, look how personal. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring your, to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Look up, please, in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him. What's it say there? Make our what? Make our home with him. In this virtuous cycle, not only will you be loved by the Father, but Jesus and the Father together will come to you and make their home with you. That's a really dramatic way of explaining the love of God. Why is that? Because some of you, I'm afraid, believe, because the Bible says so, that God loves you, but you're really concerned that He doesn't like you very much. You ever feel that way? I won't name names, and that's okay, because neither one of them are in this service, but I've always said, one of my boys needs encouragement, and the other one needs reality. Okay? One of them is always worried that he's not measuring up. The other one is genuinely surprised if you don't like him. Very, very different temperaments. <laughs> to one of the boys, he was going through a rough time and he worked really hard in school and overcame a big moment of adversity. And my wife was pouring it on and telling him how, what a good job he did. And he goes, Mom, thanks, but you're my mom, you have to say that. <laughs> I wonder if a lot of you feel the way my son did about your father's love. He's just kind of grudgingly saying, yeah, okay, what, get on in, come on, come on in. Like the awkward family member at Thanksgiving. You'd rather not come over, but it's Thanksgiving, and he's here. And he drove out from Pacoima, so, you know. <laughs> come on in. Hope you don't stay. <laughs> Look at the word picture. Look at the word picture. It's everything. It's one of the most surprising verses, in my opinion, in the New Testament. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and do what? Make our 
home with him. God's going to come into your life, not as an accessory, but he's going to settle in and make himself at home. He's going to live with you because not only does he love you, he likes you. This is the love, these are the gifts that God has given you so that you can obey him. And verse 27 says this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Notice these are gifts. These are not attainments. These are not lessons learned. These are gifts received. Peace I, live with you, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The final gift is this. He will give you peace beyond your circumstances. As a gift... Not as the world gives it, because the world will keep you on a tether, shooting out in anger, shooting back in fear, heading in all kinds of directions. If you make your joy and your Christian life depend on what's happening in this world, what's happening in this economy, what's happening in government, what's happening in our city, you'll always be at the victim of circumstances. Jesus promises that because you love him and he loved you first, he's going to give you the gift of a peace that has nothing to do with your surroundings. You're going to hear all this because here's all that I've told you so far. I've told you that there is a terrible and common deception that people claim to know God but deny it by the way they live. And that Jesus insists that the real proof of knowing him in the first place is whether you love him. And if you love him, you'll always obey him. And some of you are beginning to sense a certain kind of resolve to say, okay, I get it, I'm going to do better. God has brought things to mind like he did for Bruce that are way out of bounds. I'm going to get that fixed. I'm going to come back to him. And you're asking yourself, but I've, I've had this resolve before. What if I fail? Let me, get, let me take the pressure off. You will. It's a, per, it's a relationship, and it's only perfect from God's side. Your love will be less than faithful. Your love will be less than strong. You will be less than diligent. That's the beautiful thing. As you endeavor to love God because he first loved you, here's the final thing I need to tell you. Jesus will be your savior and your advocate all the way through. All of your struggling, all of your loving, all of your obeying, and all of your disobeying too, in all of it. When you're spot on and doing just as God said and enjoying the peace and the joy because of it, or when you're far from him and your heart is cold and you don't even really want to come back, in all of those circumstances, Jesus will be your savior and your advocate, and your ultimate obedience is going to be the proof that you actually know him. The reason I know that is because of what I didn't read to you, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. I'm now reading the section that is not in bold that we skipped earlier in the service. Listen, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's what God wants for you. He doesn't want you to sin. He wants you to hear his word and love him and obey him instead. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, do you? I'm so glad that phrase is there. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father a helper, someone who speaks to God on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the what? The righteous. He's righteous because you're not. 
His love has given you His righteousness. He is the propitiation for our sins. That's a big Sunday school word, but it means the full payment for your sins, the atoning sacrifice for your sins, the complete covering of your sins. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So you don't get discouraged. You remember when then your obedience fails because you loved yourself more? You love the world more? You love lust or power or greed or security or whatever thing, good or bad, that you put in the place of God? You remember, Jesus has spoken and John the Apostle has reminded you of his words so that you will not sin, but when you do, you have an advocate with the Father. He is Jesus Christ the righteous. He and He alone is the full covering, the sacrificial offering for your sins. And He covered not only yours, but those of, John says, the whole world. That's the confidence you have. So here's the invitation. If you really want to know God, obey Him. Start where you are, but take your next step. If God is speaking to you, if God has dealt with you, if God has shown you a next step of obedience, take that now before your heart gets cold and you change your mind. Love Jesus enough to obey him and watch what happens next. Can we pray together? I just want to give you a minute, Christian, to consider what that next step may be. Is it baptism that Pastor Jim was talking about? Jesus speaks of the Father and he coming to make their home with you? Is there some little dark corner of the house that you keep to yourself where he's not allowed? That's your disobedience. That's the part where you have loved that thing, your thinking, your habits, more than you've loved him. Surrender that to him. Tell him about it. He already knows it. There's nothing you can tell him that he doesn't already know. He'll listen to you in patient love and he'll forgive you. Just please, Christian, make the standard, not what you say, but whether you actually put into practice what God has told you. Lord, I pray that you would show now to individuals the areas in which we, and I certainly include myself, have dead spots in our relationship with you, areas that we've cordoned off and kept to ourselves lies we've believed, bad habits we've embraced. Make it clear to every Christian here the next step. And beginning with individuals, spread it through marriages, spread it out through our parenting, spread it into our small groups, and Lord, make this whole congregation walk with real love for you because we know if we love you, we will do as you ask. We will do what you say. We will follow your teaching. I ask this in Jesus' name, and Crosspoint says, Amen. Amen.